reaching net zero emissions by 2050 seems out of reach in the absence of a major acceleration of clean energy technology innovations. India, as you know, is keenly looking at accelerating its entire innovation ecosystem and clean energy forms a major component in it. The startup ecosystem is challenging the status quo. It's audacious, ambitious, you know, it's trying to reimagine and transform the way we produce and consume and uh, not just energy, but anything. I just think we need, um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds, of the size of BP and Shell just working on decarbonization. I believe that in a space like this, it's important for a company to keep disrupting not just the market, but also itself. I'm an optimist and I think uh, people might be thinking in a linear fashion, but a lot of these things happen non-linearly. So. The systems change in some of the sectors, such as mobility, is very palpable. Hi, this is Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovations and innovators that could help take us to a net zero emissions future. I'm Siddharth Singh, a consultant with the IA based in India, working on a range of issues that impact energy transitions. And I'm Simon Bennett, a technology analyst with the IA in Paris, leading work on energy innovation policy globally. In today's episode, we're so pleased to have with us Anirudh Sharma, the award-winning co-founder and CEO of Carbon Clean Solutions Limited a company right at the forefront of carbon capture and use technology in India, and also now in Europe. Anirudh, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Siddharth and Simon. Thank you for having me here, and it's, uh, it's great to share with some of the experience I've had. So before we get into the depths of the interview, uh, here's the challenge we are dealing with. To mitigate climate change, we would need to reduce emissions to the point where there are no greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere on a net basis. To reduce emissions, many economic activities such as transport can be switched away from fossil fuels to use electricity instead. In parallel, it would be vital that we scale up zero emission sources of electricity such as solar and wind. The problem, however, is that not all economic activities can be easily electrified. For instance, certain industrial products such as cement produce emissions from the chemical processes of production itself rather than by the energy used. Additionally, some processes have high temperature requirements that electricity cannot easily provide. And then there's a question of what can be done about the existing emissions intensive factories and power plants that already are in place. To decarbonize such infrastructure, the role of carbon capture, utilization, storage, or CCUS technologies could be instrumental. The idea of CCUS technologies is to capture CO2 before it can reach the atmosphere and then stored away underground, thereby avoiding its release. In some cases, the captured CO2 can also be turned into a commercial product. Now, in India's case, carbon emissions from industries could double by 2040 if we continue on the current pathway. But if we were to make the right choices, carbon capture could help us avoid up to one third of the emissions compared to the current pathway. This would mean that about 125 million tons of CO2 would need to be captured in 2040 to pursue a net zero future in 2070. And this is where Carbon Clean comes in. And here's my take on the innovation that Carbon Clean has brought to the world. And Anirudh can tell me afterwards if we got this roughly right or not. So 
Well, from our distant viewpoint, what we see is that Carbon Clean has innovated two technical areas of CO2 capture. It has a solvent that can work at a lower temperature for CO2 capture and a modular system that is 10 to 100 times smaller than the big existing plants that we know about around the world. And that means that it saves on energy costs. And also this modular plant can roll off a production line and be installed more quickly with less chance of cost overruns. So and then more units can be added over time as the business case for low carbon products improves on a sort of a stepwise basis. Now, up until now, the high one-off capital costs of CCUS equipment and the big increases in marginal operation costs that comes with that have put investors and governments off CCUS in general, even though it can look like a really attractive technology on the basis of its long-term average costs. So the situation today is that if I were a major industrial producer with an emissions problem, most of the CCUS products on the market that I could buy would be big, tailor-made and energy intensive. And unless my flue gas coming out of my chimney was a nice clean stream of CO2, I would probably need to sign a contract with a major engineering firm and ask them to design something that would look like a whole additional chemical facility on my site. It would have a big tower into which my smokestack would empty to pass it through a liquid solvent to trap the CO2, and then a second big vessel where the solvent would be heated to around 120 degrees so that it would release the CO2 that could be compressed and piped away for disposal or sale. Um, just as one example, we know that you know, the world's largest CCUS equipped power plant in Canada has these installations and they're 40 to 50 meters tall. Each of them, they can capture 3000 tons of CO2 per day, but that means they come with a price tag of hundreds of millions of dollars. And because the solvents need such high heat, you know, you have to burn perhaps 20 to 30% more fossil fuels just to power the process. And not surprisingly, most operators don't like to increase their fuel bills by this much. Today, there are still only 20 or so CCUS facilities around the world, most of which are major industrial projects and very few of which are in key unaddressed sectors for decarbonization, like steel, cement, and refining. So in summary, carbon cleans, low temperature solvent and modular approach is perhaps not a really radical change of approach, but we think it's a disruptive product in a market that is currently dominated by major engineering firms. Anirudh, did we do a good job in, in introducing your work? And could you tell us a little bit more about your current operations and what problems you're solving at a, at a very broad level? Absolutely, Simon. I, in fact, you actually have done a better job than me. Uh, I'm definitely going to have this podcast on our website so that we can introduce what we do. This is really, really great. Um, I think you've, you've summarized the problem very, very nicely. If, if you go and talk to any industrial limited today, uh, and when I say heavy, uh, industrial limited, I'm talking about heavy industries, steel, cement, uh, waste incineration, refining, chemicals, petrochemicals. I mean, these are the industry we cannot replace in short to medium term, which is 2030 or 2040 type time frame. So these industries basically face three truths today. One is net zero will be a reality. It's going to be a reality. They have to do something about the carbon emissions. It will happen. Uh, second is the cost of not doing anything is going to be higher than cost of doing something. Uh, we've already seen in Europe uh, yesterday was a record for the, uh, the the carbon emissions or the carbon credit, which was about 67 euros per ton. It hit yesterday. So it's already going uh, towards a record and record. And you know, if you believe some uh, predictions, it will probably be over 100 euros per ton within the next two years. And third, um, the heavy industry or people working towards net zero 
we'll have to come up or we'll have to work towards a basket of solutions as you rightly mentioned you know probably installing a carbon capture plant that captures all your co2 will probably also take all of your electricity all of your steam all of your manpower and you know you might as well call yourself a carbon capture plant producing cement as a byproduct rather than the other way around so i think the industry will probably have to work towards a solution which is a mix of three things which is carbon capture maybe hydrogen in some form and maybe biomass now if you're trying to scale up carbon capture uh today and if you're sitting in 2021 what options may exist in 25 27 that time frame you're thinking about okay well what's the least cost option and how can i actually start scaling up co2 capture today and that's really where our technology comes into play we're looking to provide a fully modular skid mounted uh, low cost carbon capture technology that could be rolled out to meet the ambition of the industrial emitters and to meet the space requirement and the energy uh, constraints they face today uh, as you rightly mentioned we're compressing the size of the equipment um by 10 times so that it can be 100% modular could be fit inside a box and could then be mass produced uh, a bit like a bit like a tesla type model where you basically produce thousands of these units and push the cost down to such a point where you have optimized the supply chain you've optimized the equipment sizing and you've optimized the uh the delivery time for the end user and consumer uh the impact you can achieve 30 dollars per ton cost of carbon capture and that's exactly what we work towards now we've been talking at the IEA for uh, a couple of years now about the power of some of these more modular technologies to as you say to to scale up to be mass produced to drive down costs but we haven't been able always to link that to to CCUS which is seen as a much uh bigger unit installation technology So I think it's really exciting to see these two things coming together. And I've seen that you've uh, on your website you've mentioned a range of different industrial processes that your technology would work with. Are there any that it uh, would not be able to capture the CO2 from? Um so I mean our ambition is only limited by our capability to deploy fast enough. Um I actually do not know of uh industries where our solution will not work I mean mind you we have 45 installations today already uh either in fully modular or 100% or semi modular format where we're capturing CO2 um since we started working on this from university which is Indian Institute of Technology Kharagpur IIT Kharagpur in 2009 we have already cumulatively captured 1.4 million tons of carbon dioxide across these 46 units um and today we are helping cement plants uh, you know the latest unit we have supplied we announced it in august was with uh, tcc in japan a largest cement manufacturer we have a very uh, interesting project with tata steel in india which we started in september we are working on the refining of petrochemicals we have announced a couple of uh, projects there uh, along with our shareholders um and then of course waste energy where we have a partnership with beolia uh in india to expand uh decarbonization and carbon capture from from those sources so i think we are sort of we're, we're moving as fast as we can in terms of deployment of the technology at different different industrial sites and i haven't actually experienced a site where our solution cannot work at this stage i think uh, it would be good to dial back a little uh, so before we come back to understanding our experiences at carbon clean a little better uh, we'd like to understand a little more about you anirudh 
So what's your origin story? You know, uh, where did you grow up? You know, what did you study? What was the path that you took that got you interested in carbon capture in the first place? And of course, ultimately found this company. So how did you get here? Sure, Siddharth. Um, so I was born in a city that's famous for wrong reasons uh, worldwide. Uh, city of Bhopal, which is famous for the industrial disaster, industrial gas disaster. And I have a special linkage to the to the disaster. So my parents got married uh, four days after the disaster happened in, uh, in in December. Now, as you probably know, in Indian weddings, whenever there is a wedding, you know, it's a whole family tree that shows up and then you have everyone, all your uncles and aunts and you know, everyone possibly in your family shows up for the wedding. Uh, and they probably come like four or five days before the wedding. So when the disaster starts, uh, a whole of my family tree from across India was actually in Bhopal that night. Um, and I've seen growing up uh, as, a, as a boy, I've seen the, the side effects or the impacts of that uncontrolled industrial process from one plant on my family very, very closely. Um, so I've always, always had this, this thought process in mind that uh, you know if, if one plant could actually uh, bring so much damage, what will happen if, if the carbon emissions reach a certain point, tipping point where the, the natural disaster just become a natural occurrence and start impacting the whole humanity. So I think there's always been that thought process uh, within, uh, within my mind and uh, within the psyche of sort of trying to do something which, uh, which can change uh, the course of, uh, course of human behavior. Um, it, it got further reinforced when I got into IIT Kharagpur. So we had a group that was very much focused on, uh, you know, talking about policies and decarbonization. I actually started as a climate activist in 2008. Uh, I was a member of Indian Youth Climate Network that was advocating for a much, much stronger policy position uh, for Copenhagen. Uh, you know, Conference of Parties um, in, in Copenhagen happened in 2009, which failed ultimately. But we and, and a couple of my colleagues were already writing papers at that point of time. In fact, we even went uh, as a part of procession of even shouting in front of the ministry in India um, and at COP as well that, you know, you're not taking uh, big enough uh, steps and this is just not enough. Uh, you know, this is you're playing with our future and the future of our children and grandchildren. So that was really the origin of where I come from uh, and what sort of drives me towards what I do. Um, and it so happened that in the university, I met with my co-founder, Pratik, who's, a, who's our technical guru. And he was working on a project uh, where he was trying to decarbonize large power stations. And I said, you know what, we have to collaborate on this. Um, and it, was, it was that perfect meeting of minds that, uh, that led to the genesis of Carbon Clean. Uh, in fact, Anirudh, when you said a city famous for the wrong reasons, I had guessed Bhopal before you even said it. So, you know, I can imagine the, the extremely strong impact that it must have had on you. And of course, it shows in the work that you've done so far. But coming back to Carbon Clean, um, what was your first year like? You know, what were the mistakes that you made back then that you would perhaps not repeat if you were to start out again today? And, uh, you know, also, how has the world changed in all these years? Uh, what kind of transformations have you seen that would make Carbon Clean perhaps, uh, you know, have a very different start today? Ooh. We're going long time back in history, 12 years now. Um, so I think for any for any startup, what's what's true is uh, first year is the is the year of pivots. So you pivot, 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 and you can try and get to the right location, right place, right product. Um, for us, I think the biggest mistake we made is we, we we initially started as a consulting company, 
you know, Pratik was working on a, on a technology that could potentially change uh, the course of carbon capture, could potentially reduce the cost of carbon capture quite significantly. We said, you know what, why don't we start a consulting business out of this? We can work with large power stations, large steel plants, a couple of the people we knew from uh, from steel industry and cement industry. They were our seniors from our, our university, from IIT. So we said, you know what, why don't we actually sell a consulting product? And it was a disaster, right? I mean, first six months running around here and there, trying to meet people, trying to consult people in heavy industry. Within six months, we concluded after, uh, after spending a lot of money, we concluded nobody wanted to get consulted from 21-year-olds. That was just not happening. So we said, okay, this is, this is not working out. We need to pivot. And we then uh, pivoted towards a product model. We said, look, we need to come out with a technology, a tangible product that people can buy and install in their, uh, in their, in their existing facilities. Uh, part of it was also a bit of a learning experience we have from Silicon Valley. So we went to, uh, you know, with a couple of uh, well-wishers and friends, uh, we were able to uh, get to Silicon Valley in 2009, spent some time at Stanford trying to learn from, from a couple of professors there, the importance of carbon capture, where does it fit within the wider energy system, and then also having conversations meeting with uh, ex-entrepreneurs who have actually sort of gone ahead and built large companies, so learn from their experiences. So yes, yeah, so, I mean, the first year was a lot of pivot, 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 and a lot of business change, business model change. Now, if I were to do it in uh, in, in, in 2021 again, I'll probably be in a much stronger position because I think there's a much wider recognition now uh, that something must be done uh, about industrial decarbonization. I think there's a much wider recognition from within the uh, within the investment community, the banks that uh, yep, carbon dioxide is a big problem and people are putting a value on it, which is significant value. I mean, in 2009, carbon credit was trading at about seven, eight euros per ton, maybe. Um, so I think there's a much wider recognition there in that time. And in 2021, uh, you know, one of the things that um, I absolutely, absolutely love in terms of where we are now is the, is the people part, right? I mean, bright people now want to join companies and businesses uh, working in sustainability space. And the businesses, those are or businesses or startups, those are making impact, real impact on uh, on, on real life uh, things that we see around, you know, how do I decarbonize the steel plant so that we can get to a carbon neutral steel, which will then get into buildings and, you know, my dwellings will become carbon neutral as well. Um, so I think in 2021, people part has become a very, very, very big, very big part. And I think that's, uh, that's probably, we struggled with something in, in, in 2009 when we were starting. Thanks. Um, I think it's these, these stories about the, the pivots and the, the evolution of the, uh, the industry environment that um, we find particularly fascinating, but also I think they should provide reassurance to people that are starting out now that the uh, the idea that they're so convinced about may not be the one that uh, turns out to be the winning solution, but there uh, there will be a uh, an interesting journey along the way, as I think you've you've discovered yourself. And you mentioned there about your trip to to Stanford. And you just mentioned, I mean, how did that come about? And I think I'm interested in the question of what was the support available to help get you onto your feet? Where did the most support come from? Uh, was it coming from, from the public sector or the private sector in the early days? 
Oh, um, so the, before I actually get to this, the, the, the trip in itself, um, I should actually say uh, in 2009, you know, it was not very common for people um, or students in India to actually start a company or a startup from the university. Uh, you know, the whole concept was actually, yeah, it, I think it came out quite widely after the movie Social Network came out and how people were doing it on Harvard and, you know, how the whole thing was actually <laughs> moving into a different direction and how 21, 23-year-olds could be the CEOs of these uh, multi-million dollar corporations and companies. Um, and it only started in like 2013, 14, where people just out of college or in university started uh, building startups. So for me, it was like, wow, it was big. Uh, within our within our, our education system or university system, there was no... Uh, there wasn't. There were no holders where you could say, "I'm going to pause my education and take a take some time out." Um, in fact, for going to Silicon Valley in 2009, uh, my co-founder Pratik and myself, we actually had to bunk our classes. We had exams at that point of time, and our, our VC vice chancellor told us that you, you're either going to lose the semester or you're going to lose the trip. So choose. And we said, okay, no problem. We'll see about what happens in the semester we're going to the Silicon Valley. This is probably once in a lifetime opportunity. So it was quite daring at that point of time. But I think uh, j- just to sort of uh, get back to your, uh, uh, your your question around the ecosystem, I think the ecosystem has sort of come along uh, quite a lot. In those days, I mean, we had a friend whose father was working in a sustainable consulting business who then connected us to an investor in the UK who then connected us to a professor in Stanford. So it was like a fairly long chain, you know, four or five connections. We could call ourselves lucky or, uh, you know, the stars got aligned. In uh, end of 2008, he came to India to judge a business plan competition where we were presenting our idea, our technology, and this is how we can commercialize it. And he got quite quite excited. He said, look, I mean, I've, I've been sitting for the whole day in this business plan competition and I've seen a lot of ideas here relates to software, IT and technology. You guys are doing the hard hat stuff, actually uh, getting hands dirty and trying to save the world. I'm going to support you guys and I'm going to take you to California. So he was a professor at Stanford at that point of time. He took us there. He organized meetings with really influential people and professors like Professor Sally Benson, who I'm still in touch with. She was the program director um, of climate change for uh, President Obama at that point of time. And this Professor Martin, Professor Martin Hamming, he also organized meetings for us to meet with, you know, the the, the blue chip investors uh, on Sand Hill Road in in the Valley. I would say, I mean, I we were at, at the right time, at the right place, and we got a, we got we had a lot of luck uh, behind us um, to be able to sort of get to Silicon Valley in 2009. Yeah, these are familiar names to us, but I think that the idea of of startups in this space looking for investment in Silicon Valley and CCUS is something that you know, we weren't aware of when we were um, looking at what was happening in the in the CCUS space. It was really interesting to reflect on uh, on some of that, having been involved in in work on CCUS um, back in those days, uh, and. I mean, I'm curious about your early interactions with with investors that you've mentioned there, and whether they actually led to uh, any equity investments or other types of, of financial support. What were the challenges that you faced in trying to sell this particular uh, idea of ground carbon capture uh, to them, and and how did you overcome those challenges? 
So I think the biggest challenge at that point of time was the whole thing was on a paper. You know, we didn't have any uh, any actual product. We said we had an idea that look, if we were to sort of develop this new molecule, then it'll be a great solvent. It'll save a lot of energy. It'll probably reduce a lot of corrosion, so you can see save a lot of cost on the on the steel. Uh, when M time downtime would sort of go down quite significantly. Um, so it, w- it was all an, all an idea on paper, and I think a lot of people struggled with with the fact that there was uh, very little uh, data sitting behind it. So I think we had we had some trouble convincing the investors, and hence our first round was you know the three Fs, the golden rule of startup journey: friends, family, and fools. You go and raise money from that, and we raised. We ended up raising twenty six thousand dollars from three Fs, which then allowed us to lease a small lab. In uh, in India, in Mumbai, and uh, and start working on lab experiments where we could actually showcase that look the solvent that we are talking about does actually work, and here are the results, and here is the data. So I think that was the that was the biggest challenge, biggest problem. Um, again, at that point of time, the there was a very little recognition of climate technologies, and especially climate technologies coming out of India. I mean, everyone was running behind software, internet, IT type models. So we had. We had a we had a tough time trying to convince uh, investors that like, this is this is a tech that would work, and this is a tech that's going to be super important in uh, in in future. So I think that was those were the two major challenges that we faced uh, in, uh, in in 2009. I mean, but I would say I mean some of the some of the initial backers who backed us in that twenty six thousand dollar round, and after that we raised fifty thousand dollars, and after that three hundred thousand and a million dollars. Uh, I think it was a lot of leap of faith. A lot of people trusted us uh, in terms of what we were doing, and some of them realized that yes, this is going to be very important. This is probably uh, future of industrial decarbonization you're talking about here, uh, and they backed us up at that point of time. And where did that first investment, uh, equity investment, come from, and, and when did the the first investors come on board? So the first investors, the very first money that came to our bank account was actually our parents. So my father, my father loaned three lakh rupees, and Pratik's father loaned three lakh rupees. So that was the first money in, and we had the first money in. Like I said, friends, family, and food fund. So once you had family committed, you go out and say, "Look, I already have six lakh. I need some more money." And then people say, "Okay, fine. Here's five. You know." No problem. Go ahead and and so on. So uh, we had the first money from our parents. Uh, the second money that followed came from that same Stanford professor, Professor Mark Heming. Uh, he gave us uh, eight thousand dollars, I think, at that point of time. Um, he then introduced me to two other people, a, a private equity executive, uh, Anand Sindhaji, who's actually a British citizen based in London. Um, I think Anand gave me five thousand um, dollars, and then one of the senior advisors uh, within KPMG in India, who was working on um, sort of decarbonization and who was advising the government on decarbonization, he gave us another five thousand dollars. So it was it was that kind of combination that 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 came together as the first uh, first part. But after that, I mean, once we had some results from testing the product at, inside a lab in uh, in India. We took it to Netherlands uh, to an entity called TNO, um, and they independently tested and verified our solvent. And gave us a report saying that yes, this solvent is definitely, definitely a game changer as far as um, carbon capture technologies are concerned. So after that, 
uh, we raised quite quite a lot of investment um, from Bloom Ventures, first institutional investor. Uh, they're based in Bombay, uh, and we had a couple of other uh, investors come in. I mean, for example, the founder of Sony Entertainment invested. Um, so quite a lot of people came in after that report was there, and there was empirical data to suggest that technology is actually uh, is good. I think it's a you know a really inspirational story for for many people out there. The way that you sort of blended some of these sources of uh, of capital from different parts of the world. Um, not only in India, but in, in the United States and, and London as well. Yeah, indeed, Simon. In fact, uh, you know, as he says, the friends, family and fools turned out to be the visionaries here uh, who could who could uh, well see the future. And, and of course, the potential of Anirudh and his team itself. Um, so now moving on to, you know, what's happening in India and the CCUS space today. While India does not have an overarching CCS policy, what types of ambitions or regulations already exist that encourage investment in, in carbon capture, if at all? And uh, if, you know, relatedly, if you could help design regulatory uh, mechanisms and or a CCUS policy itself to unleash innovations and help this market develop, what would that look like? Well, that's a, that's a big question. It's a million dollar question, um, to be honest. So what, in terms of what exists today, I think uh, there's, a, there's a fairly limited amount of tools that exist today in India uh, in terms of decarbonization. In fact, it's the, uh, the, the pressure from the investors, ESG investors within, uh, within the listed companies that's actually driving action towards decarbonization. Uh, I mean, in India, we have announced project uh, with NTPC, which as you probably already know, is the largest power producer in India, and I think the second largest user of coal in uh, in Asia. Uh, so we have a project with them, capturing carbon dioxide. It'll go online next year. We have announced a project with Dalvia Cement. And that's and that's capturing from a power plant. From a power plant, Sorry. yeah, from a coal-fired power station. Um, and in fact, they're going, you know, the whole nine yards. So they're capturing CO two and then producing uh, carbon-neutral fuel as well. So it's it's a, it's a it's a very interesting project. Um, that will come online next year. Um, and I think we have also announced a project with uh, Dalmas Cements, where we have, we have said that we'll work with them jointly to help them achieve net zero ambition by 2040 um, in, the, in, the, in the cement space, where, which is where they are uh, you know, one of the largest players. Um, so I think just from a policy, instrument, policy instrumentation instrument perspective, I think there is support for demonstration plans and R&D work. Um, which companies can get access to um, and uh, and install these demonstration units at their site so that they can understand what exactly is carbon capture and how does it talk to their existing plants and units. Um, however, I think the large-scale commercial benefits uh, or support uh, is missing at this point of time. Uh, if I had the opportunity to sort of uh, advise people who make policy or who make decisions on, on the policy, um, I think a couple of things that I'll mention is one, we should have some kind of carbon price, uh, which is a which is basically a market link mechanism, right? I mean, if you put a carbon price, then then the emitters can, can choose what, what works best for them. You know, and I'm not saying uh, carbon capture is best for everyone, you know, for some of them. Maybe energy efficiency is good for some of them. Maybe hydrogen is good for some of them. Biomass is good. So I think we should definitely uh, push for some guidance on carbon price uh, internally uh, within within the country. 
so that it becomes a very, very clear message that we will be working towards decarbonization uh, and achieving that ambition and goal, which uh, Honorable Prime Minister has, has announced at COP. Second, I would, I would link the carbon emissions to the, to the actual commodity prices in the market. So if you're buying cement, you can buy zero carbon cement, carbon neutral cement, and non-carbon neutral cement. And I would sort of try and push for a premium for that. Uh, it already exists today in other industries. So if you look at organic food, uh, there is a premium you pay for organic food, organic milk, organic uh, parties, organic wheat. Um, I think we need to probably get somewhere there and there has to be clear policy definition and support system to say, um, you know, there will be a premium for um, uh, for clean commodities or for clean products. Uh, and the government of India actually has some of these instruments already available at hand. For example, fly ash from power plants is already distributed in a 100 kilometer radius and it's given a preference and preferential pricing. So I think some of those policy mechanisms will be super helpful. Um, and I think third would be a, uh, a national uh, support or financing program that could help companies start working on these large projects that could decarbonize. Uh, we've already seen some policy on uh, electric vehicles and supporting that. We've seen the national hydrogen mission. I think there is a there's a requirement for a national carbon capture mission as well um, that could allocate significant chunk of capital, uh, either as a match funding or as a grant funding or as a subsidy to the first movers and help them uh, sort of cover some of the risks um, from being a first mover. I think one of the things that's so interesting about this journey is that so much of your support in the you know, up till now has come from um, private sources of, of support or capital, and as you mentioned, some of the um, the environmental targets of the the multinational companies. And it's now that you need to start looking much more to the the public sector um, for some of this regulatory support, which is, in a way, it's the inverse of many startup journeys where there's a lot of initial government support related to R and D. Um, and then the, the market footing is is a little bit more uh, sort of organic after that, um, which I think is is a really interesting moment in in your journey. And if I understand correctly, you're much more active now in the United Kingdom uh, as well. And so I'm wondering how you see in in global terms as well this sector evolving uh, out to 2030, and where will be the opportunities, and what should we expect uh, in 2030? Sure, I think that's a, a great, great question, great point, Simon. I think I, I should probably sort of just um, mention that we have received a lot of funding support from the from the government, uh, especially in the UK and the US. Um, it was it was back in two thousand and twelve. You know, we, we we were the recipient of um, uh, of the innovation CCUS innovation funding, so we received four million pounds from the British government to further develop the technology. Um, and that allowed us to come out of India and uh, set up uh, joint R&D programs with Imperial College in London, uh, University of Leeds, University of Sheffield, uh, and Technology Centre Mongstad in Norway. Uh, similarly, from the funding from the US government has helped us demonstrate the technology at large scale at National Carbon Capture Centre in the US. Uh, and of late, our next generation technology in which we are compressing the size of the equipment, the first demonstration, and now the second demonstration We've received significant funding from the U.S. government as well. Um, in, in, in terms of uh, where we see the market moving, I mean, 
or the government support moving i i think there is a this is a huge opportunity um that most of the governments are realizing uh president biden the us has signed the uh, infrastructure bill and that infrastructure bill uh contains significant amount of support for uh, developing ccus ecosystem so they've sort of moved on from be, it, it being a tax credit linked system to actually you know paying the cash type system which is if you capture carbon dioxide and store it permanently you will pay you 80 dollars per ton and that's a great that's a great way of sort of incentivizing people and say okay well here is the here is the the money that you need to cover your risk uh, and then the realization of risk as well and we sort of move ahead so i see between now and 2030 just in the us we could catalyze about 25 about 25 to 75 million tons of co2 capture capacity uh in the uk the government has announced financing for uh a support for two industrial clusters one on the east coast one on the west coast and at a wider level it's a billion pound program that the uk government is uh, is leading at this point of time we've seen similar supports come from the european union so yesterday european union has announced a list of i think 25 projects uh, that will receive funding from the pot 1 billion euros the the european union announced uh, last year towards decarbonization and ccus so i see there is a huge level of support between now and 2030 um i mean with all the support i think we would still need a lot of private capital to uh, achieve the minimum ambition for uh, achieving net zero or 1.5 degrees celsius i mean in iea's report itself says that we should be at about 527 million tons of co2 capture capacity by 2030 and that need to be ramped up at least 10 to 12 times between 2030 and 2050 um for comparison purposes we are only at 40 million tons get co2 captured every year today so from 40 to 500 is a 10 times ramp up and the the story becomes even more complicated because most of the technology today as you sort of said towards the start of uh the conversation most of the technology today is bespoke and it need to be installed by people and takes a lot of time 18 months to 2 years so the global installation capacity today across all the big companies is only about 1.5 million tons so if all companies across the world keep working 24/7 you'll only be able to still install 15 maybe 20 maybe 30 maybe 40 million tons between now and 2030 which means you would still well, that's a, that's a really great way to put it yeah i mean you still will will only be like 20% of the milestone you still not achieve half a billion tons of co2 capture and that's really where our company comes in where we are saying we're going to mass produce standardize this equipment mass produce it put it all inside a box so that you can get it onto a site in 6 months and actually connect it in less than 6 weeks so if you're a cement plant in you know in 2023 or 2024 you can actually call us and say well send me a box we send you a box in 6 months and you have a carbon capture plant operational in 6 weeks at your site so it's crystal ball time i'm listening to you describing the this huge opportunity and i'm just wondering when we get to 2030 you know where do you think your your biggest factory is going to be located and you know how important is it going to be um for those you know those shipments to be going near to where there is co2 storage geological storage um compared to you know perhaps what what share of your co2 uh, might be going to to other uses yeah so it's it's kind of where what how uh 
question, Simon. So I think what will it be? Um, I think it will probably have to have a couple of gigafactories to be able to produce the kind of uh, demand that we are seeing now. And just to be able to meet the ambition of uh, of, uh, of the customers and partners. I mean, for reference perspective, uh, we get contacted about a thousand times per month um, for for the product and for a fully modular unit. People want to build something up. It's just not possible for us to sort of even talk to a thousand people, <laughs> uh, let alone service them. So I think in, by between now and 2030, we'll probably end up with a couple of gigafactories where we'll be producing uh, hundreds of thousands of these units and shipping it out. Uh, where I think that's uh, something to be seen, uh, we would want to match the ambition of supply with the ambition of where the biggest action is going to be. And also the golden rule of startups is be in your market or closest to your markets. Um, so we want to match that ambition. We still have to see uh, where uh, where most of the action, the quickest action is going to be. So we'll uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, and I think in, in terms of like how, whether it's it's just going to be the sites sitting close to a storage location or, a, uh, you know, would there be a role for dispersed sites to play as well? And I think it'll be everything. If you look at a European example, there are 20 industrial clusters under development now. Um, so cluster is a couple of companies coming together and saying that, look, we are all going to work together and pool our carbon capture, captured capacity so that we can um, reduce the cost of transport and storage. Our clusters will probably capture 5 to 10 million tons of CO2. So we have 20 under development in Europe. Uh, and, the, and the underlying principle with lots of them, maybe 13, 14 of them, is that you can ship the CO2. So you can capture CO2 um, at any site, take it to a port, put it on a ship, and then ship will take the CO2 and store it. So I think we'll see an action uh, in, in, in a lot of places, in a lot of countries between now and 2030. And perhaps a bit of a delinking of you know, the the storage site and the capture site, which I think has um, plagued many of the CCUS support programs um, that have not managed to put up these large integrated projects with the, uh, the sort of the, the large first mover infrastructure on the transport and storage. Fully side. agree. Exactly. Okay, Anirudh, thank you so much for answering all of our questions and being being patient with our uh, exploration of your story. We're going to subject you now to a set of five rapid fire questions um, that we are asking to our, our guests on this podcast. And the first one of those, if you could just you know, fire back answers as, uh, as succinctly as you can. The first question is, will India get to net zero emissions before or after 2070? Absolutely, yes, before. Okay, and uh, who will be your biggest competitor in 2030? This could either be a technology or an actual company. Green hydrogen. And if it weren't for energy, what would you be working on? Uh, pharmaceutical. Oh, wow, that's that's a <laughs> fresh one. But, uh, okay, so what new type of product do you hope that your company will be marketing in 2030? Uh, a one that could capture CO2 with a tenth of the energy cost today. Okay. And the final question, if, if you could collaborate with one company in India or anywhere in the world today to scale up your operations, which company would that be? Oh, that's a difficult, that's a very difficult one. I would probably want to collaborate with, uh, but actually with government of India, um, because, uh, you know, in India, 
everything is basically driven by by the government and the government policy. So honestly, I would like to collaborate with government of India. That's a great answer. And for the International Energy Agency, which focuses so much on informing better government policies, um, that's exactly the type of answer that, that we're looking for here. And thank you so much, Anirudh, for sharing all of your experiences. Uh, certainly, I wish you all the very best of success in your initiatives to accelerate the energy transition. And we look forward to hearing so much more about, about Carbon Clean and your successes in, in the coming years. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you so much, Siddharth, for having me here. It was sort of great speaking with you and sharing some of the experiences. I think you're doing this. This is a great way of uh, of, of bringing about stories that will probably inspire a lot, a lot more people going forward. If we have to achieve, you know, net zero by 2030, I just think we need um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds, of the size of BP and Shell just working on decarbonization. And we'll not get there unless we have enough people motivated to work in this space. So thank you for, for taking the initiative. So thank you, Anirudh. I think this was fantastic. Um, we genuinely learned a lot from your experiences. And I uh, have no doubt that this would be extremely inspirational to people, especially in universities who, who want to take this up. In fact, we have been speaking to a lot of people. There have been a lot of interest in recent months uh, from, from people who have either money to invest or, uh, you know, or, or people who have not traditionally worked in energy who are trying to find out what's happening in the world. I think, uh, you know, your story would be one which, which would really help them understand uh, uh, your space at least uh, very well. So thank you very much for that. You've been listening to Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovators and innovations that can take India and indeed the world to a net zero emissions future. Our next episodes will feature in-depth conversations with India's most promising innovators working on this global challenge.